Welcome to the new edition of Kansas Country Roads. Today's episode is featuring a very special acoustic performance by American Aquarium's frontman BJ Barham, who I just got back from watching perform his solo acoustic show tonight at Knuckleheads. I was able to record the entire thing. Sounds fantastic. It was a great show. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Got another episode coming this week with Jesse Harris and Stuart Ray. So enjoy this uh, BJ Barm episode. We'll talk to you guys later. Just a crutch till the drinks were just too much. Guess it comes with the job. Hail, hail, rock and roll. You see, songs fulfill a human need to sit back and watch another man bleed. So for a moment, we don't have to feel sorry for ourselves. And this imaginary confidence became my first line of defense. If you don't let them in, boy, they'll never let you down. But she broke through and took control, my sweetheart, of the rodeo. And for the first time, I found something I couldn't afford to lose. You see, I'm in a good Place. I'm walking that street line. I'm just getting along, righting these wrongs one day at a time. Well, 
every now and then I miss the way that highball glass would kiss my lips like a long lost love welcoming me home. But I don't miss the highs and lows, the back and forth, the ebb and flow, letting down the people that are standing up for me. You see, I'm in a good place. I'm walking that street line. I'm just getting along, righting these wrongs one day at a time. Yes, I'm getting along, righting these wrongs one day at a time. Thank you so much. How you doing, Kansas City? My name's BJ Vaughn. I'm in the bank called American Quarry from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks for coming out. It's cold as shit here in Kansas City. We've been cutting through the South for the last three weeks, and uh, it's been chilly by my standards, but it's not been cold. Cold is when I have to put on more than a sweatshirt, and uh, today is definitely more than a sweatshirt weather, so... Fuck, how do I... <laughs> my merch guy, my buddy uh, Pigs, is from here, and he's just like, this, is, this isn't that bad. I was like, fuck that. <laughs> if this is, ain't that bad. Fuck it when he's like, man, it was chilly yesterday. <laughs> but yeah, that, that last song I just played you was about sobriety, if, uh, if you're slow. Um, <laughs> if you didn't pick that up by reading between the lines, it's gonna be a long fucking night for you. <laughs> I've been sober for four and a half years. Oh. I always start off the show by saying that just to let you know, do not let that get in the way of you having a good time on a Monday night. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I'm not one of those teetotal or judgmental sober people. I'm actually quite jealous of you folks. Uh, Y'all all seem to be upstanding citizens for the most part, except for a couple of you. And... Uh, Y'all are able to go out on a Monday night and have a couple cold beers, a couple liquor drinks, a couple glasses of wine, and tomorrow morning, don't get me wrong, you'll probably make a couple bad decisions here and there. By, by tomorrow morning, you're gonna be a functioning member of society. Couldn't, couldn't do that. I had what the doctors called a problem. And so I stopped, and it, it worked out for me. It doesn't work out for everybody, but it worked for me. Uh, you'll never hear anybody utter the phrase, man, I got sober. And everything just fell apart. <laughs> Tends to be an upswing, and uh, and I've enjoyed a lot of it. So uh, I, it'll be a recurring theme throughout the night: recovery and addiction and all that good stuff. So I'll just guilt you into ordering a few more drinks, taking care of your bartenders, and all that good stuff. But I grew up in a tiny little town, a uh, place called Reedsville, North Carolina, in the middle of fucking nowhere, in North Carolina. And uh, I come from a place where uh, where hard work and, and and working hard jobs is, is pretty normal. So when I told my dad, uh, that I was going to be a songwriter, he kind of laughed. He's like, no, but what are you really going to do? And to this day, 13 years into this career of mine, my father still refers to what I do for a living as a hobby. My brother sells cars. He calls that a job. And I always ask my dad, I'm like, hey, dad, what's the difference between what I do and what Bubba does? He said, it looks like you're having too much fun. <laughs> and I think that's, a, that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think you should find something you really love doing. And if you love doing it, it doesn't feel like work. But, uh, my dad is absolutely flabbergasted that any of you would show up on a Monday night 
He'll listen to me tell stories and sing songs. He always starts off this conversation every year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, we sit down and we have the same conversation. He always says, let me get this straight. And if your father ever starts off a conversation with let me get this straight, he is about to say something so wildly offensive about what you do for a living. But he's going to say it like in a dad way, so you can't get mad at him. He says, he says, let me get this straight. People pay money to listen to you bitch about your problems. I say, yes, sir, nuts and bolts, break it down. That's exactly what I do for a living. He said, I don't get it. I lived with you for 18 years. And you never once said anything. I'd pay you to repeat. <laughs> Choose the awkward moment of the conversation when I give him a side hug. Because my father is a grown, masculine, southern man. He does not believe in hugging another grown man face to face. Tell him I love him. He nods his head because he's a grown, southern, masculine man who does not talk about his feelings. He thinks it's weird that I make a living talking about my innermost fears and feelings. He's always thought it was weird. I've always been this way. I've always wanted to talk about how shit makes me feel. That's not masculine. That's not Southern. And my dad always thought I was a weird kid for it. Like, ninth, ninth Christmas, I'll never forget it. My dad comes to us and he says, what do y'all boys want for Christmas? My brother's like, I want a tool set. My dad's like, that's my boy. You know, if it's broke, you fix it. That's a good gift, my boy. BJ, what do you want? A journal? <laughs> never forget, he said, what do you want one of them for? I don't know, write down observations, feelings, you know, just keep notes and shit. Weird. But sure enough, my father, my father and my mother were always very much facilitators. If we wanted to explore a path, they usually tried to clear out a way for us to explore it. So sure enough, night Christmas comes around, we open up gifts. My brother opens his first shiny new tool set. My dad's extremely hands-on explaining to my brother what each tool does, what its application is, and when they can use it. And then he just hands me my gift. And I opened it up, and it's exactly what I wanted. It was a leather-bound journal. It had my name stamped on the front. I had rawhide ties. It was fancy. But the way my father handed it to me ruined the sentiment of the gift. He just said, here's your diary. <laughs> just imagine a tiny, pissed-off version of me screaming at him, it's not a diary, it's a journal, Dad. <laughs> but later in life, I would learn that what, I, what he gave me was a diary. It was, in fact, a diary. A journal is what Lewis and Clark keep as they cut their way across the western frontier. A journal is what the USS Enterprise kept as they skipped galaxy to galaxy exploring other life forms. What I did in that book was definitely considered a diary. I just wrote about how kids at school made me feel inadequate. And what girls I thought were cute. But this past Father's Day, I decided that I was going to change my father's mind on what I did for a living. My hobby has turned into a pretty good career for me. I'm able to take care of myself. I'm able to take care of my family. And we live relatively comfortably. And uh, so this Father's Day, my brother calls me up and says, are we going to do what we always do? I said, yes, sir. And to fill y'all in on that, every year since I was 18 years old, me and my brother have got my dad a $50 gift card from Lowe's Hardware. Every year without fail. So I told my brother that was what I was going to do, but I pivoted did something else behind his back. I went to Lowe's, and I got my father the one thing he has always wanted but never splurged on himself and bought. He's always wanted one of them stand-up lawnmowers, one of those zero-turn, multi-directional Toro lawn tractors looks like you're doing an elliptical workout in your front yard. He's always wanted one but never bought it for himself. So I went and bought him one. And they were asking me, they were like, what, what's the delivery instructions? And I said, it needs to be there on Father's Day at 11.45 a.m. They said, we'll try. I said, there's no try. It has to be there at 11.45 
It's very important. Fast forward to Father's Day. We're sitting there at 11.30. I look at my watch. I say, guys, it's time for gifts. Let's do this. And my brother pulls out a little envelope, hands it to my dad, $50 gift card, Lowe's Hardware. Thank you, son. My mom hands an envelope, $50 gift card, Lowe's Hardware. And he looks at me. And he's like, son, did you get me a, a gift card? And I said, no, sir, I did not. He said, well, did you get me anything? And, she, and as soon as he said that, the doorbell rang. And he went and got the door, and it was the Lowe's delivery man. But the Lowe's delivery man, as soon as he opened the, up the door, the little delivery guy said, did somebody order a lawnmower? <laughs> <laughs> but he said it in the kind of way, like a, one of those telegram strippers would say something. <laughs> Like a guy who's dressed up as a UPS man be like, did somebody order a giant package? <laughs> the only thing missing from this man's delivery was like a boombox playing girls, girls, girls. <laughs> but my dad still wasn't in on it. My dad was like, no, nobody here got a lawnmower. Lucky guy, though. And I was like, dad, you might want to check the invoice and see if your name's on it. See, see who it's being delivered to. Like, maybe one of your sons is trying to get your attention and your respect. <laughs> check the fucking notes or something. And sure enough, he looks down and his name is on the invoice. And he turns into like a giddy schoolgirl. He runs out, backs it off the trailer. And I swear, for about 20 minutes, my dad was just in the front yard cutting circles. And that day, I learned such a valuable lesson. I learned that money cannot buy you happiness. Money cannot buy you a lot of things in this world. But it can buy your father's approval. <laughs> And this is a song about working your way up to that. And, uh... All my friends are growing up, changing pretty girls' last names. Yeah, I'm still finding my way, ruling down that highway, playing a much younger man's game. Every night we're drinking in dive bars and dance halls. And they're all at that age where they're all having babies and picking out the nursery color walls. They all ask me how I'm doing. How to smile and realize. And although it was kind of me, my youth is all behind me. Now I'm on the losing side. That losing side of 25 Yes, my mom and dad did the best they could To raise me the right way But I leaned more than wrong And I started writing songs Thinking I had something to say So every week at the food line all the other parents boast that their kids graduate and getting higher educations and the big city jobs that they chose. My parents ask me how I'm doing. I hang my head and close my eyes. They say, Don't throw your life away. Go and get a job that pays. We love you. We know that you tried. And lose inside of 25. I might never have a mansion, might never own me a home, 
But I got a couple songs, some boys that I call friends, and a pretty girl that I can call my own. Yes, I might never be a millionaire. That's alright by me. Cause I've done the things I wanted to And said the things I needed to And seen the things I wanted to see So when they all ask me how I'm doing I just smile and realize That there are different roads to happiness I took a different path I guess Came out on the other side just fine And losing sight of 25 there are different roads to happiness I took a different path I guess Came out on the other side just fine And losing sight of 25 Thank you. If I get a little less of that guitar in my monitor And a little bit less of the, the Spaceman echo on my voice Yeah, if we can go back to where it was during sound check. It's just really loud up here. Still a little bit less if you don't mind. Sorry guys. Everything changed on me. A little less of that guitar. That's uh, according to Spotify and Luke, that's the most successful song our band has ever put out. Yeah. It's uh, if you, it's got like four million plays on Spotify. If uh, if any of you know how to get paid for those four million plays, please let me know. <laughs> There's a Toro lawn tractor in it for you. It's uh, we've been driving around a lot on this tour. We've had a lot of long drives, and uh, it's a fun game to play. Um, it's called, which one of my favorite 90s country hits has less plays than Losing Side of 25? <laughs> it's a fun game to play, because I realized a couple days ago that Losing Side of 25 has more plays than any song in the Confederate Railroad discography. <laughs> it's a good feeling for me. That's a pat on your back. That's a, hell, I can drive another three hours. I'm pretty good. But then you come across these colossal heavyweights of the early 90s country genre, and you realize you'll never catch them. Like Joe Diffie. <laughs> whoever, that, whoever that man's digital publicist is got him in on the ground floor of Spotify. He has like 25 million plays. So I went back and listened to most of his hits. And they had some good ones. Like John Deere Green. Tell me that's not a banger. <laughs> I was playing there in soundcheck. <laughs> they were farm kids way down in Dixie, reading high school in the 60s. Everyone knew it was love from the start. Midnight hour, climbed up on a water tower, stood on a rail and painted a ten foot heart. And John Deere Green, 
Charlene Larry's three foot high And the whole town said the boy should have used red But it looked good to Charlene Oh. <laughs> I've been telling pigs I was going to play that song all tour. He's like, no, you won't. <laughs> Tonight's pigs last night with me, so I had to I just sneak it in there on you. Yeah, I know it sucks. But I'll see him in like a week, so it doesn't matter. It's, it's okay. We see each other a lot. He knows more about me than any human being not named my wife should know about me. <laughs> I think, you might, I think you might know more than her. True. True story. Don't say that in front of her ever, please. She's like, what does pigs know that I don't know? You can't talk about you. <laughs> we can't talk about that. Oh, me. So I grew up in a tiny little town, like I said before, Reedsville, North Carolina. It's about 2,000 people. It's a little tobacco farm in town. Uh, and just in case you guys don't know the geography of North Carolina, just in case you're not brushed up on that recently. Uh, there's the mountains of North Carolina, there's the coastal region of North Carolina, and then there's the, the, what we call the Piedmont region of North Carolina. It's right smack dab in the middle. It's all the rolling hills, and that's where the agriculture takes place. Uh, if I'd have stuck around Reedsville, North Carolina, I would have been a sixth-generation tobacco farmer. That's the cash crop in North Carolina, or it was the cash crop in North Carolina. Uh, I myself decided to go to college and study political science and history. Uh, if you're ever wondering to yourself what a political science and history career looks like, Feast your eyes upon it. Taught me a lot of $10 words and to be an opinionated asshole. That's about all college taught me. Um, but I, I was one of those kids raised in that small town who I knew for a, for a fact very early on that it was not for me. Small town living was not for me. So I worked my ass off in school and made sure I got the fuck out of there. I went to Raleigh as soon as I could. I went to North Carolina State University and uh, I, I settled in Raleigh. That's where I still live. Uh, and there was a lot of the normal things that kids hate about uh, small-town America, you know, the closed-mindedness, the, the, just the, the narrow people. But one thing I couldn't stand, and one thing I still can't stand now that I've moved back to a small town right outside of Raleigh, is, is how they force religion on kids before they have a, an opportunity to make up their mind what they believe in. They scare the shit out of these kids. I know they scare the shit out of me. At least Southern Baptists do. And that's how I was raised. My father is a deacon in a Southern Baptist church, so I feel like I can talk about it, you know. I was raised on it. Uh, I was brought up in the church, and for the first 12 years of my life, I bought into it, you know. Uh, I, like I said, I've been sober four and a half years, but I've been a recovering Southern Baptist for 22. It's, uh, thanks. It's, compared to, you know, quitting booze was easy. <laughs> compared to telling my mom I was leaving the church. That she did she's like, Well, baby Jesus still sees you everywhere you go, so <laughs> Lord still loves you, son. You'll come back. Okay, mom, I love you too. But around the age of twelve I, I stumbled upon one of the most important lessons I've ever learned in my entire life. I learned the one thing that Southern Baptist people hate more than gay people. More than abortions. They fucking hate questions. <laughs> Especially when those questions come in the form of a smart-ass 12-year-old version of the man standing before you. I sauntered into Sunday school class that morning, armed to the teeth, with questions based in facts and reality and proven theories. After a very informative science class the week prior, 
Miss McCollum was not ready that day, friends. <laughs> she did not show up to further the flock toward Christ. She showed up to impress the other mothers on the committee. So she signed up her name to teach, and she methodically ran through her handbook. And at the very end, she asked, does any of you kids have any questions? <laughs> Imagine the same kid, 12 years old, same haircut, same smug, <laughs> shit-eating grin. <laughs> Blue Oxford clip on blue top, pleated dockers. I don't know if you've ever seen a prize fighter in his prime. The way they deliver punches. Hit him with the left, wait for the recoil, they open up the right, you hit him with the right, and you keep repeating it on the ground. It's like a verbal version of that. I asked this question, and as soon as I realized that she could not wrap her head around what I had just asked her, and she went to spit some piece of nonsense to redirect. I hit her with a right. And then I hit her with another. Hit her with another. And finally she just yelled, stop. Because she couldn't yell, shut the fuck up, BJ. <laughs> because we were in the house of the Lord. A lot of people get upset when I start telling this story because they're very religious folks. And I'm not making fun of religion. I'm not even making fun of Southern Baptists. I think if you can put your hope and your faith in something that tomorrow is going to be better than today, I fully support it whether it be religion or family or music or whatever, you put everything into thinking that tomorrow's going to be better. I am, that is a beautiful fucking thing. The only problem I have with religion is when people use it to further a hateful agenda in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what fucks with me. Uh, Usually those type of people are hypocritical, judgmental assholes that sit on the first three rows of the church. So I can look out in the crowd and tell that most of y'all, especially the religious ones out there, are, are true followers of Christ. You practice on a daily basis uh, kindness and love and understanding and helping other people out. So I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about that first three rows at Sharon Baptist Church in Reedsville, North Carolina. <laughs> it took me 20 years to exact my revenge on those people. And I did so in the only way I know how. Uh, because after I ask all those questions... Uh, I thought I'd won. I, I was pretty cocky about it. The rest of the kids were like, wow, you really stood up to her. I was like, yeah, you know, what's up? <laughs> but Miss McCollum had an ace in the hole. She had something I did not expect her to throw. I didn't think she had the balls for it. She went and told my dad. <laughs> and if there was anything that scared the shit out of that smart-ass 12-year-old version of me, it was telling my father. She went to him and said, Walter, that's my dad's name. She said, Walter, BJ was acting up in Sunday school. And he said, oh, what was he doing? He said, she was asking, he was asking a lot of questions. My dad said, yeah, you know, he's, he's been reading books. <laughs> we'll talk to him about it. And he said, no, we just think it's best that he not come back for a while. Which I thought was an intriguing way of dealing with the black sheep in the flock. Usually you would surround it with love and patience and kindness and understanding, much like the teachings of Jesus Christ. But instead, they just punted this little black sheep right off the edge of the fucking cliff and wished me luck. So this goes out with those first three rows. <laughs> Born and raised, but I never quite 
bought into that preaching too much fear too much hate so I drifted from my faith out of high school I questioned things that I could not see that's when they told my dad that we weren't welcome back and they were gonna be Said, son, the road, it ain't easy. It's all just a series of mistakes. But you gotta learn how to take the bruises off the brakes. The love with the heartaches. The crooked with the straight. So I wandered through my twenties uninspired I got an education at the end of the bar And I traded in my youth For three chords in the truth In the ring of fun electric guitar And we made all these plans We were gonna take a stand Set out and rise above the noise. But after all those shows we played, their fight began to fade. And as they walked away, I heard my father's voice. He said, Son, the road, it ain't easy. It's all just a series of mistakes. You gotta learn how to take the bruises off the brakes, the love with the heartache, the crooked with the Said, son, the road, it ain't easy. It's all just a series of mistakes. And son, you might not believe me, but I promise you one of these days, you're gonna learn how to take
always like to throw the saddest fucking song I've ever written right in the middle of the set. Really just see where y'all are on Monday night. And it's fun, because that's one of those songs. As a songwriter, uh, your main job is to observe, listen, watch, and then write down stuff that makes people feel the same feeling you felt when you wrote the song. And you miss the mark a lot. I've missed the mark quite a bit in my career, but that's one of those songs I know that it affects people. I can see it in your face. I can see it. There's a little game I'll play every night. I keep one eye open during that song. It's just called, Make the Biggest Motherfucker in the Room Cry. <laughs> and don't worry, sir, I saw you, and I don't think your wife did, but I did. Most of the big guys can make it two, two verses. And that third verse, I look for the big one. And then there's always a little bit of light gleaming in, and you can just see the glass coming over. And that's when that fourth verse comes, and I just go for your throat. I'm like, ooh, you're mine, dude. It's a fun game. But also, I keep an eye on folks, because I lose about half of you in the second verse over my pronunciation of a nut. I'm not talking about losing you like you got up and walked out the door. I'm talking about losing you where you did this. Over the way I say pecan. I'm explaining why I'm right. There are trees in this world called pecan trees. No argument out of me. They have these nuts on them called pecans. They fall off, they're still pecans. When they hit the ground, they're still pecans. You pick them up, put them in a bushel, take them inside. When they cross that threshold, they're still pecans. We are on the same page. Take them into the kitchen, still pecans. But I'm telling you right now, the minute, the second that sugar hits them, they become a pecan. It is almost as if that granulated substance manifests another fucking E in the word. <laughs> pecan pie, pecan sandy, pecan praline. Ask me what they're made of? Sugar and pecans. <laughs> I don't know why it's like that. It's science. <laughs> well, we were in Chattanooga a few nights ago, and there's a lady on the second row. And you could just see that I'd lost her. She was fully into that song, and then she just does one of these. <laughs> and afterwards, you just hear her chirp in, it's pecan. <laughs> and I said, no ma'am. I was like, it's not. There's two different definitions of the word. There's two different pronunciations. And I'll explain to you why I think there's two. And then at the end of it, she was still not convinced. She was just irritated that I even took the time to try to argue. She was right. Nothing I could say was going to change her mind. And she was fuming after my explanation. Because a lot of people in the crowd were like, yeah, I agree. That's totally right. And she was like, fuck those guys. And her husband could see that she was getting a little unsettled. And like any good husband, he took her side. He stood up and said, I'm a professor of English, and it's pecan. That motherfucker backed me into a corner. I didn't want to attack him. It was between me and his wife. But he chirps in, and I didn't really have any. I didn't know this man from Adam. But I had one Hail Mary that I could throw. And I didn't want to throw it. It's a 50-50 jump ball. It was a haymaker. But this motherfucker made me throw it. I just looked at him and said, I bet you don't even have tenure. 
<laughs> Again, did not want to do that. And I had no idea whether or not that punch in the dark was going to land. Until the friend sitting beside of him opened his mouth and said, He don't! <laughs> Side note, the rest of the night, that friend thought I was some kind of redneck medium that just could read the crowd and know your deepest, darkest. He just, he was so impressed by that I knew that that guy didn't have tenure. And that guy slowly sat back down, embarrassed, and didn't say a word. But I tell that story just because it's, it's one of those things where both of them are correct. Regional dialect, I've traveled the country. Regional dialect is one of my favorite things in the entire world, how people pronounce things, the pronunciation of things. Like, in Kansas City, what do you guys call when you go to the grocery store and you grab a something to put all your groceries in? Buggy. Buggy, cart, anybody else? Anybody from Long Island, New York area? They call them wagons up there. Everybody's got a different fucking word for the same thing. And it's funny, because we're in the same city, and y'all call it two different fucking things. Uh, I call it a buggy. That's, that's, that's the central North Carolina. So my wife moves, she's like, can you, sh we were going to the grocery store for the first time. And you know that feeling when you first move in together and you go to the grocery store for the first time? It really tells you a lot about the human being, like what they buy, what they, whether or not they buy like the, the good cereal or like the cheap cereal. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know you motherfuckers judge people for that. <laughs> like me, there's two things I will never buy generic. I will never buy generic toilet paper and I will never buy generic cereals. It's just two things I don't fuck around with. You know, I want, you know, Captain Crunch. Not Admiral, uh. <laughs> you know, that's not my thing. And toilet paper, my father used to always say, like, never skimp on anything you wipe your ass with. Smart man. Smart man. So my wife's always like, well, this one's so much cheaper. I was like, this is Charmin. That's what we're fucking getting. Maybe some Quilted Northern every now and then. But we're a fucking Charmin family. If you can't get on board, you can get off. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. No, it was one of those things we went shopping for the first time, and, and sure enough, she said, grab a wagon. I was like, oh, what? A wagon. But then as I started realizing, it's just anything that is pulled by a horse. That's what it is. It, that's where the names came from. It's like when people used to go into town to get stuff, that's whatever was pulled, whatever they called what the horse is pulling is what they call what they put the groceries in the shopping cart. And I think that's fascinating. Same with pecan and pecan. It's, 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 it's preference. It's like caramel and caramel. I don't know which one you motherfuckers say, but I know that if it comes in a square, pre-wrapped, individual thing, it's a caramel. But if you ask me what is inside of a Snickers bar, it's caramel. Don't know why I do that. I like to give both sides a chance. But that's a fun one to throw out for people, just because you can see people. There's probably one guy in the crowd who's so angry right now. Because I don't care what that motherfucker says, honey. It's his pecan. He's just spouting nonsense. So I said earlier, I, I've been sober for four and a half years. And uh, when you're in recovery, uh, it's one thing. And before you're in recovery, you have two phases. You start off, you're an addict in denial. And then you are in recovery, but there's this weird median, this gray area, where you're a, an addict who admits that he has a problem but doesn't know how to fix it. Sometimes that's a day process, sometimes that's a week process, sometimes it's years. And I was very fortunate during that process because I wrote a whole record in that gray area. I wrote a record called Wolves, 
Um, if you listen back to that record, I thanks all four of you picked it up. And <laughs> Listen, motherfuckers, let's do it on Spotify. <laughs> you only clap for the records you buy. You can change that. We have everything for sale tonight. So just throwing that out there. But it's, it's one of those things. I made that record because I, I, I'd already admitted that I had a problem. I didn't know how to fix it. So you can hear it throughout that whole record. It's just a guy trying to figure out how to get sober. And I wrote all these verses for one song in particular, or these verses, it's this big metaphor comparing addiction to this pack of angry animals that just would not leave me alone. But I couldn't write a chorus for it. It was impossible. I sat down and I tried to write a catchy, sing-along chorus about sobriety. And I learned that it is difficult, if not fucking impossible, to write a catchy chorus about sobriety. Plenty of songs on the radio today about having cold beer on the dirt road in a pickup truck, on a tailgate with a pretty girl and some blue jeans and some Bud Light. Whatever they're playing on the fucking radio. Don't get me started on that shit. Country radio today makes Joe Diffie look like fucking Merle Haggard. I swear to God, it would not surprise me if like Joe Diffie, Tracy Bird, Mark Chestnut, and fucking Travis Tripp formed the Highwaymen too. And just, I was like, man, those are some. That's the Mount Rushmore of '90s country, man. Just getting together to pay their taxes, like every good aging country star should. But yeah, today it's just all—it's all beer drinking entries. That's what they want you to do. Because when you come to the shows, they guess what they want you to do? They want you to drink beer. They want you to drink cold beer, ten-dollar beers, twelve-dollar beers. So they write all these songs about cold beers, Bud Lights, pretty girls, dirt roads. And it's, it's like fucking redneck Mad Libs. I, I, would love, I would love to be in one of those songwriting sessions. And if you ever look at the big hit, the big country hit on the radio, it's got seven or eight songwriters. Think about that. It took eight motherfuckers to write Cruise. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Eight people wrote that song. Really? It took eight of you motherfuckers to write a song about a pretty girl and riding around with your windows down? Get the fuck out of here. I will give them credit. All them country stars these days, they're, they're some pretty motherfuckers. Can't write their way out of a fucking bag, but pretty. Strong jawline. My mom always, when I started writing music, my mom always asked me, she's like, what kind of music are you going to write? And I was like, oh, I'm going to try to write my, what I think country music is, you know, my definition of country music. And she said, you ain't got the jawline for country music. <laughs> I said, maybe if your side of the family didn't drink Mountain Dew at every meal, I might have a more pronounced jawline, Mom. <laughs> she did not like that comment. And now I just revealed to you that my mom's side of the family is... The redneck side. <laughs> every family had, and every one of you motherfuckers, whether you want to admit it or not, because your parents might be here. Uh, every side, there's always the, the better side of the family, the ones that got the better Christmas gifts, the ones that were not arrested as much, the one that <laughs> waited till they're at least 25 to have the first kid. I'll put you in perspective. My mom, uh, my mom just became a grandmother last year. Uh, that she was, she's 60, uh, she's 61. She became a grandmother at 61. Her sister, who is three years older than her, is a great-great-grandmother times seven. <laughs> Just to toss out that side of the family. That's the mutant bloodline that seeped into mine. 
They're nice people. They're, they're related to me. I didn't invite a single one of them to my wedding. My mom still gives me shit over that. I invited pigs to my wedding. And none of my mother's brothers and sisters are invited. I invited a grown man named Pigs. <laughs> Instead of my Aunt Barbara and my Aunt Brenda. They were all B names, too. It's just, you know, Barry, Brenda, Beverly, Barbara, Bobby. Their parents' names were Betty and Benford. But my mom did keep up with the naming, because I'm Bradley and my brother's Brandon. My dad finally just broke my dad's like, I don't have a fucking B name, so fuck it. And I'm never going to name my kid anything that starts with B. So, there you go. You know a little bit more about me now. But I was sitting there and I wrote this song and uh, I, I didn't have that chorus. And I tried for about two weeks to write a real catchy anthem about sobriety. You know, and I just couldn't do it. So I did what anybody from the state of North Carolina would do as a plan B. I made an obscure ACC basketball reference right in the middle of the chorus. For those that don't know what that reference is, I went to North Carolina State University, home of the Wolfpack. Uh, we are the most horribly mediocre athletic program in the entire country. Yet we remain the most delusional fan base in all the country. We are the people you hate going to the bar with. Because we always talk shit about how good we should have been. Or how good we could have been. Or you remember back in 83 we won that national championship? Man, those were the days. I wasn't even born yet. And I still reference the 83 title like it's my full-time job. I realize now that NC State hates me. They create new ways to let me down on a weekly basis. Every year we start off the season, we're ranked. Every end of the season, we will always play in a bush, an inter intercontinental tire bowl, and we'll always go to the dance and basketball. But we will never be a contender. We will never, again, be great. They will always find a new way to crush me on the inside. It's almost as if I'm sitting in my hotel room watching it, and they get an alert in the locker room that says, hey, B.J. Barm is in Kansas City watching the game right now. Uh, let's just blow this 30-point lead and break him as a human. Give <laughs> me that thing that I don't have any involvement in. I, have, I can't even put my hands on it, but it affects my day-to-day -day life. But when I was 18, I was a freshman in college, and I didn't realize that how big of a shit show NC State Athletics was. I thought if you were ranked, you were going to be pretty good. I was wide-eyed. I was naive. I was optimistic. I had my whole life ahead of me. So on February 9th, 2003, we're playing the number one team in the country, the Duke Blue Devils. At home, we're a 17-point underdog. No way we should even been in the same gym with those guys. But we had a secret weapon. We had a six-foot-six shooting guard, number 24, from Harlem, New York, Mr. Julius Hodge. He would later go on to be the 2004 ACC Player of the Year, be drafted number 18 in the Denver Nuggets, but I digress. <laughs> February 9th, 2003, we played the number one team in the country, and we beat them by 10. Largely in part to Julius Hodge having a monster game. He had like 37 points, 10 rebounds. It was a career game. And after the game, all the students rushed the floor. We just beat the number one team in the country on national television. And they run up to Julius and put a microphone in his face which is a horrible idea to do to a young athlete after they just won a game they weren't supposed to win. They put a microphone <laughs> in his face and said, Julius Hodge, how does it feel to beat the number one team in the country? And this is his moment, people. He has, this is national television, 9 p.m., ESPN. He has the nation's ear. 
he could say something so profound that it brings NC State athletics back into the national consciousness. <laughs> so he closes his eyes and he opens his mouth. And he just says, when we hungry, we eat. <laughs> That's all he said. He just ran to the locker room after that. And you can YouTube it. You can uh, type in Julius Hodge, hungry we eat, because it is absolutely absurd. But the best part is the last 15 minutes because the ESPN analyst, it just goes back to him standing there with the microphone, dumbfounded. <laughs> well, there you have it, Tom. Julius Hodge, when he's hungry, he eats. <laughs> back to you guys in the studio. And I, I thought that moment of absurdity from my freshman year would, would make a really great anthem for sobriety. So I twisted it around and, uh, and made it fit the narrative. And I finally finished my song. I worked on it for weeks. And I finally finished this song about this pack of animals. But then before I released it, I realized I had to let Julius Hodge know that I recorded the song. Hell, he wrote the chorus. <laughs> so I did what anybody would do when you're trying to get in touch with a professional athlete. I just sent him a Twitter message. I said, hey, Julius, I wrote a song about you. BJ, sin. And my wife looks over my shoulder. And she said, that's the creepiest fucking thing I've ever seen him. And I said, no, it's not. It was a salutation. It was his name. It was a declarative sentence. And I signed it. It's pretty straightforward. She said, let me read that back to you. In the creepy voice. Hey, Julius. I wrote a song about you. Yeah, that's fucking creepy. I immediately regretted sending it. But luckily, he only kept me in suspense for about five minutes because he responded. And he responded with one sentence. But it was one sentence that let me know he was totally cool with me using that thing from 15 years prior that he accidentally said on national television. He, he almost endorsed it. But it was one sentence. And it was, it was... Only Julius Hodge could respond with this one sentence. It just said... That shit's fire, son. <laughs> but instead of the word fire, it was just three flame emojis. <laughs> and so this is a song I wrote about NC State athletics and substance abuse. <laughs> and if you follow NC State athletics close enough, you understand why the two are directly correlated. <laughs> I turned 16 Watching my dad fix up cars In the smell of gasoline I just wish that someone Took the time to warn me About those evil things That lie beyond the trees Cause when the wolves are hungry the wolves leave. I just wish these wolves would get their claws out of me. Yeah, I've never been any good 
had ever sticking around. But I'll always be the one that'll let you down. Seems like my feet start running before they hit the ground. Just wish they didn't always take me to the wrong side of town. Cause when the wolves are hungry, the wolves are I just wish these wolves would get their claws out of me. Yeah, I can see the fire in their eyes, the blood on their teeth, and they can smell the fear in my bones and hear the shaking of my knees. The beautiful women, yeah, sweet amphetamine. I just wish these wolves would get their claws out of me. I just wish these wolves would get their claws out of me. six generations uh, we have we've grown it uh, but the last two generations have worked in the manufacturing of it my grandfather being the first uh, he ran the farm for a while and then he went off and fought in World War two came back home and started a job at the American Tobacco Company in Reedsville North Carolina uh, and he worked there for 46 years for 46 years my grandfather sat at a machine and watched cigarettes roll off of one end by him off to another machine 46 fucking years, 12 hours a day, five days a week. That's what that man did his entire life. Can you imagine that being your legacy? Right before he died, he used to always brag to us grandkids. He was just like, I made it out of that factory with all 10 of my fingers. I'm so proud of myself. Can you imagine being that? That's what you're proud of in your entire life. That's what you have to show, having all 10 of your fingers still. My grandfather, I wanted to write this song because my grandfather was wide-eyed when he went to the service. He went in thinking he was fighting for the same thing everybody else was fighting for, which is the American dream. My grandfather quickly found out it was just that. It was a fucking dream. It's not for everybody. We're taught as kids that if you're willing to work your way up really hard, do what it takes, you can be successful. That's right to a certain degree, but it's also bullshit. What they do not tell you when they're teaching you this thing called the American Dream is that you have to get lucky a couple times to become successful. Talk to anybody out there that is successful, the definition of successful, and they will tell you that there's at least two or three times throughout their entire life that they got a lucky break. And if they hadn't received that lucky break, they would not be where they are today. My grandfather was not a successful man because he didn't work. He worked his ass off his entire life. My grandfather just didn't catch a lucky break. So I wanted to write this song for him. I wanted to write this song about what it must have been like to sit there every day watching the years go by, realizing that you fought for that dream for somebody else to have. And that you were going to sit at this machine either until you died or you retired or they kicked you off the machine. And so this is for anybody out there whose grandparents 
just worked so other people could get lucky. Uh, this is for him. Every day around lunchtime I start daydreaming My inside starts screaming Wanting something more And I come crashing Back to reality Before the walls closing on me And crush me to the core Yeah, I work my fingers to the bone to have a little bit of something I can call my own At the American Tobacco Company At the American Tobacco Company When I got home in the summer of 45 Not a single place was hiring But my cousin knew a guy now I sit here on the line and watch these big machines crush my hopes and dreams into Paul Malls and Lucky Strikes. Yeah, I work my fingers to the bone just to have a little bit of something I can call my own. The American Tobacco yourself up by the bootstraps they say you can't live the American dream but all those days I spent thinking in the South Pacific hell this ain't how I thought that dream would be so every single morning I walk into this building and I think about my children and the life they ought to lead. And I try my best not to look back. Just stare up at that smokestack and my troubles fade away. One of the uh, one of the most beautiful things about recovery is is, is clarity. It's, uh, it's what I tell everyone when they ask me what my favorite part about it is. Clarity is a beautiful thing. Clarity is being able to to look back on what you did today and yesterday and a week ago and realize it fully formed, not fragmented at all. Just kind of have a clear concept of your life and be able to enjoy it all the good times. But what they do not tell you about recovery is is clarity of, of the bad kind, you know. It's, uh, if you're a good person and you get sober, you have a pretty positive image of yourself. Clarity is beautiful, you know. But if you're a shitty, rotten person on the inside like I am, clarity is hard as shit. Every day you gotta look in the mirror and realize, fuck, you are a terrible human. Go get him, tiger. <laughs> 
It's one of those things, but I, I've used that kind of negative clarity to figure a lot of stuff out about myself. I realized that I was a very unhappy person for a very long time. But, and it was only my fault. It was nobody else's fault. I blamed my unhappiness on other people in my entire life. But I just realized I was afraid of being happy. Any time in my adult life where I have even been close to happy and content, I just set fire to that situation and walked away. Wrote a couple songs about it. Blamed it on them. Moved on to the next one. And that's a fucked up way of living. You know, it's, uh, sobriety has taught me a lot of things. Sobriety has taught me that I deserve to be happy, that it's okay for me to be happy. And my wife has taught me that it's okay for me to be happy. She's had to see some pretty fucking low points from me. She knows I'm a shitty person on the inside. God damn it, she doesn't stay with me. So that's teaching me that I deserve to be happy, that I got a woman that, that gives a shit about who I am as a person, no matter how big of a piece of shit I am on the inside. So I, I started going back because in recovery they tell you you have to go back and you have to reconcile the relationships that you broke. And some of the biggest relationships, I don't, a lot of the gals that I broke relationships with, fucking, I don't remember a lot of those relationships due to the drinking. But the relationships that I broke that mean the most to me that I feel so sorry for are, are band members. I've had 38 band <coughs> members in 13 years. I'm going to go ahead and repeat that. 38 band members in 13 years. After 20 people leave your band, you can individually blame them. You can say, you were a shitty drummer. You were a bad person. You deserve to work at Wells Fargo your entire life. <laughs> After 38 people come to your face and tell you that they can't do something that is so much fun because they can't stand you as a person, that's when you have to start taking personal stock and realize that you're the common denominator of these problems. And so uh, I was very fortunate for a very long time. I got to keep the same band together for seven years. Uh, it was the band that was on Wolves and Burn, Flick, or Die. It was the band that a lot of people associate as the band. The definitive version of what you think of when you think of our band was those guys, those five guys. And I got to keep that band together for seven years. I was so fortunate. I, I, I took it for granted while it was happening because I just thought that's what bands did. But to keep a touring band together for seven years with no turnover, that's like dog years. It was forever. It was great. But then in February 2017, it all came to a head. They all came to me one by one and told me they did not want to play music with me anymore. And I don't care what my publicist says or what my manager says. It was not an amicable split. It was, it was bad. It was vicious. It was tumultuous. The last six months we were a band was a nightmare. We hated each other. We got in that van and we always fought. We always argued. Sometimes it came to a head physically. But we always hated each other. We woke up in the morning, fuck you, fuck you, let's go to this show. And we'd get on stage and we'd fake it pretty good for 90 minutes, but we'd get off stage and we would just despise each other. So when they all came to me and quit the band, I was extremely immature about it. I was like, fuck you, who do you think you are quitting this band? We built this thing together and you're going to walk away? Fuck you. But as time has went by, I went back and reevaluated the situations and realized I was just a shitty person they couldn't put up with anymore. I ran all those guys off. So I wanted to write a song not encapsulating that last six months of just absolute terror. It was a horrific situation. I wanted to write a song that encapsulated those first six and a half years, that what I consider the formative years of my life. I spent my entire 20s with those guys. We saw this country for the first time together. We traveled abroad and did all of Europe together, Canada together. 
Um, I've seen those guys at their highest highs and their lowest lows, and the same for me and them. Um, I wanted to write a song that I could be proud of and focus on that happiness that we had together, that magical time. I hate to use shitty business, Disney princess words like magical, but that's exactly what it was. It was, it was pretty incredible to be in your mid-20s and not care about shit and just be with your friends playing music for people. Or, in most cases, playing music for a bartender and a sound guy with nobody in the crowd. <laughs> I'll get to that later. But uh, I hope these guys hear this song because uh, I don't talk to any of those guys anymore. One or two of them, we've, we've kind of mended our, our stuff and we're trying to get back on that same page. But three of those guys, I know for a fact, I will probably never talk to again. And it's a shame. I wish I could apologize to them. I wish I could look them in the face and tell them I'm sorry for being a shitty person. I'm sorry I didn't try to be a better person around you. Sorry I took you for granted. Um, so if any of you have ever lost a relationship or let a relationship fade away due to some bullshit reason, if you went through and blocked somebody during the 2016 election that you've known your entire fucking life because they posted one fucking news ad, give them a call tomorrow. Ask them how they're doing. Tell them you're sorry for being a terrible fucking person and try to move forward with it. I wish, I could, I wish those motherfuckers would answer my phone calls. Um, but this is a song I wrote for them, uh, and I miss them, and I wish them the best. And uh, this is a song called When We Were Younger Men. I still hear the silence echo across the hardwood floors, screaming as you cut across the room to that front door. Nothing lasts forever, but I'd have sworn you'd stay. Ain't it funny how the good things in life seem to fade away? We were carrying a heavy load, and one of us got tired of lifting. We were driving down a dead end road. In a car too far gone for fixing. Yeah, I still think about that summer, and I still hear the sound. Petty on the radio, I won't back down. I called you my brother, but you were closer than my kin. And it kills me knowing you may never pass my way again. But I hope every now and then You look back fondly on the days when we were younger men We packed up that 350 for the Conline with hopes and dreams and other childish things men learn to leave behind. We spent a decade doing circles, not knowing what's in store. Each new town more magical than the town before. But we lost track of time. And the dark hair of our youth started to whiten. I watch my father's face become mine 
And the cruel hands of truth started to tighten. Yeah, I still think about that summer so long ago it seems. Penny on the radio was running down a dream. I called you my brother, but you were closer than my kin. And it kills me knowing you may never pass my way again. But I hope every now and then you look back fondly on the days when we were younger men. I remember back before that pendulum had swung Back before we said the things that couldn't be undone I remember back when we were wild And we were young Yeah, I still think about that summer And how it passed us by Petty on the radio, us learning how to fly. I called you my brother, but you were closer than my kin. And it kills me knowing you may never pass my way again. But I hope every now and then you look back fondly days when we were younger men. There are, uh, there are two things my mother always told me you cannot talk about at the dinner table and in front of strangers. It's religion and politics. We've already talked about religion tonight. <laughs> We're all adults here. Went over pretty well. Fuck it. <laughs> we used to have these wonderful things as a country. They're antiques now. They don't exist anymore. Some of the, uh, the older folks in the crowd, you might be able to tell your kids about what these things are. Because they probably don't even know what they look like. They wouldn't know if they were caught in one, if it smacked them upside the face. We used to have these things called discussions. Oh, what a time to be alive in America where you could sit down with somebody who completely had a different point of view than you and you could talk about it. You could explain why you believe in what you believe. You could have the bullet points and you could go through and then you'd let them speak. And they might not change your mind. They probably wouldn't change your mind. But at the end of this conversation, follow me. I know it sounds absurd. They would stand up and shake hands and still fucking be friends. <laughs> Nowadays, we have these things called arguments. And a lot of people stop me and say, BJ, arguments and discussions are very similar. And yes, they are extremely similar. They are both verbal exchanges between two people. But there's one key difference between a discussion and an argument. And that is respect for the person you're talking to. We don't have respect for people anymore. You clap out. It's not. Respect is a good thing. It's a great thing. I'm going to use another word that's a good thing that we don't use anymore. It's called empathy. Beautiful fucking word. Magical word. Disney princess word right there. 
empathy. It means taking yourself out of your shoes, putting yourself in someone else's, and try. Keyword, try. Attempt. Put effort into seeing their side of it. It's crazy what you can do. It's not like I said, it's not going to change your mind, but it gives you a bigger perspective on why someone is arguing about it. You might not believe what they believe, but if you can see why they believe what they believe, it gives you a better sense of what the world is. But nowadays, I blame it on fucking social media. I blame it on being able to put ourselves in these insular bubbles. Somebody says something you don't agree with on Facebook, what do you do? Block them. Everybody loves blocking people. My dad has Facebook. My dad blocked our neighbor of 32 years <laughs> over what something that man said about Waffle House hash browns. <laughs> and Jim called me up and said, hey, I think your dad blocked me on the internet. And I said, there's no way my father blocked you on the internet. You lived beside of us our entire life. Called my dad. I was like, Dad, did you block Jim? He's like, damn right I do. Said some of my Waffle House hash browns. <laughs> And that's the shit I'm talking about. There's nonsensical things that we're blocking people over. Because once you block somebody that disagrees with something you say, you're creating this echo chamber. Because you're going through and you're blocking more people, more people until you've eliminated any opposing view to anything you believe in. Whether it be Waffle House hash browns or, I don't know, the election of 2016. And once you create that echo chamber, you think that your opinion is solely correct because you're only being told it is by the people that you are allowed, you have allowed to comment on your shit. We don't get to see it from other sides of you. That's the beautiful part about what I do for a living is get to travel around. And I know for a fact half of my crowd feels one way about this and half of my crowd feels another way. And at the end of the show, I get to hear both sides. And I am so fucking hyped about hearing both sides because it challenges me as a person. It makes the weaker parts of my argument better, knowing what the other side thinks about them. It's a beautiful thing, this, this interaction, this talking to people with respect. We don't do it, though. My mom has a word for the world. I like to use fancy words. I like to use $10. That's what my mom says. She's like, you use too many $10 words. <laughs> my mom uses a word. I like to show off just how much more I paid for my education that I will never use. I like to show how much I overpaid for an education. Uh, but my mom calls the word... Uh, the world, she just says there's so much meanness in the world. And I have struggled to find a better word for that. There's bigger words, but I don't think anything fully resonates the current climate of this country is that meanness. You know, we're just fucking mean to each other, you know? And uh, so I wrote this song, and I started writing this song, and uh, it touches on the current climate of the country. And I put it out, and a lot of my fans were like, Hey, BJ! Shut up and sing. I ain't paying for your opinion. Thanks, Gary, 32, Oklahoma truck driver. I appreciate that. Last time I checked, your Facebook page was littered with nonsense that you had an opinion. But as a songwriter, we're not supposed to have opinions, and I think that's very fun. Because most of you, I like to think that most of you are fans of the way I write songs. And the way, well, at least I like them. And the way I write songs are these very raw, unfiltered takes on everyday life. I, like, I don't like to dance around with fancy metaphors and abstract things. I like to shoot you straight right down the middle, tell you what I'm feeling. Raw, uncensored, unfiltered. That's how I love writing songs. I think that's how it translates. And I think that's why people enjoy my writing. So it's extremely funny to me when people tell me that they don't want to hear my opinion. They just want me to sing because they want to hear my opinion about relationships, my struggle with addiction, uh, my failures, my shortcomings, the band, uh, being on the road.
But that one thing that swirls around us 24 hours, seven days a week, don't talk about that, BJ. I might ruffle a little feathers. Not if you talk about it empathetically. Not if you talk about it without insulting someone. So I sat down to write a song about what I was seeing, what that meanness that I was fucking seeing. It's for both sides. I don't care what side you're on. You have to admit, the world ain't what it used to be. We are fucking split down the middle, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. And I had a buddy of mine when I first wrote this song. He's like, BJ, why did you finally decide to head into political climate songs? You know, Why were you writing about that? And the answer's simple. I had a fucking kid. The minute I found out that I was bringing another person in this world, oh, friends, it got real. When I realized it just wasn't about me anymore, that I was responsible for another person and how they thought and how they acted and how they interacted with other people, that was the game changer. I never want my daughter in her entire life to look back on anything that happened in our lifetime and say, Dad, why didn't you write about that? You had a platform to say something, and you didn't say something. I never want her to think I was afraid of losing a Twitter follower because I was afraid to say something. And I also want to make sure that I teach her to look at someone, a complete stranger, not look at them based on what their title is when they voted or who their religious affiliation was. I want her to look at people and see the good in them. I want them to see the positivity in them. If I've done that, if she never judges anyone and just tries to get to know someone based off of who they are as a person and not who they fucking voted for, then I knocked it out of the goddamn park as a day. So the simplest answer, that's a long-winded way of getting back to the fact that when somebody asks why I decided to write about this, it's for my daughter. You can listen to it. That first verse of this song is angry. I don't understand what happened. I don't understand how we got so lost as a country. Second verse, I'm writing empathetically. I'm writing trying to understand, trying to put myself in someone else's shoes. And the third verse is simple. It's for her. It's letting her know I've got her back on everything. If anyone gets in her way... Any ideology that gets in her way, I want her to punch through it. I want her to bust through to the other side. And once I got that verse about her done, the chorus fell into place. The chorus is simple. Just be a good person. If you're listening to this song and all you're walking away from it with is it's a political song, put those earbuds in a little bit tighter and listen to it again. Because that's not what it's about. This is a song about perseverance. This is a song about working your way out of a shitty situation. This is a song about standing up for something that you see that is wrong and calling it and giving it a name and asking people to have a discussion about it. And so uh, this is for her, and uh, this is a song called The World's On Fire. She looked out the window and said, world's on fire I just laughed and poured her a glass of wine We stared at the TV trying to find some meaning hoping that we'd wake up from this dream sometime tomorrow What a night came and went not a damn thing had changed That's when I saw a tear fall from her eyes She said, what are we gonna do? What's this world coming to? 
And for the first time in my whole life I stood there speechless The load is heavy and the road is long And we've only begun a fight We just can't give in We just can't give up We must go boldly into the darkness And be the light So I packed up my car and I went looking for answers To the questions weighing on my mind Become the home of the afraid Afraid of the world, afraid of the truth Afraid of each other This ain't the country my grandfather fought for Cause I still see the hate he fought against Give rest to the tired Give mercy to the poor Give warmth to the huddled masses And I'll show you freedom The load is heavy and the road is long And we've only begun a fight We just can't give in We just can't give up We must go boldly into the darkness And be the light I got a baby girl coming in the spring I'm worried about the world she's coming into But she'll have my fight She'll have her mama's fire If anyone builds a wall in her journey Baby, bust straight through We just can't give in We just can't give up We must go boldly into the darkness songs for you. Thank y'all a ton for, uh, for coming out on a Monday night. I know that's not the most rock and roll night of the week, so thanks for making it a pretty rock and roll night of the week. A lot of folks always ask me, they say, they say, what's your favorite song you've ever written? That's a loaded and very, very difficult question to ask a songwriter. It's like me walking up to a, a lady in the supermarket with a gaggle of children saying, 
Which one of them's your favorite? I like them all a little bit, you know. And every parent has a favorite kid. They just can't say it out loud. Or you can, yeah, sure. Good on you. I, 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 with my parents, they don't ever say it out loud. They just they kind of like have inside jokes. Like, well, my mom, I asked my mom, hey, mom, who's your favorite kid? She's like, you know I don't have a favorite kid. <laughs> and that's how I know I'm her favorite. And I know for a fact my dad loves my brother a touch more. Like, if he... If it was biblical times and he had to kill one of us, he would fucking come with me with a knife so quick. <laughs> Can't let my manly son die. Gotta take care of that one that has feelings. <laughs> the tender meat son. Made a living talking about his feelings. Can you believe that? Kill him. <laughs> But I set out to find out which one of these songs is my favorite. I, I've released 107 songs in 13 years. And I've written more than that, but uh, no, it, it's, it's my job, so thank you. It's like going to a, a mechanic and he's like, well, we fixed that transmission. Thank you. But it, it's one of those things where I had to start figuring out what the criteria would be for me to judge my favorite song. Um, there's songs I think are more well-written than others. Uh, there's songs that I think the melodies are better. There's songs that I think the arrangements are better. Uh, there's songs that I think that have stood the test of time and songs that should never be listened to ever again. Um, this is like one of the few crafts, like if you go to a cabinet maker, they get better over the years. And if you ask to see that cabinet maker's first set of cabinets, they'll be like, they don't exist anymore. I set them on fire. If you want to see my first set of cabinets, get on iTunes and you can download the motherfuckers. And just be like, oh wow, those are those are lopsided as shit. But every now and then I wrote a couple that, that, that made me feel like I could keep doing it, you know, and so and then when coming up with the criteria, there's a whole different criteria for what songs do I know fans like more than me. Um, songs that I don't think are as well written, but they kind of what we talked about earlier, hit that emotional bullseye, hit that thing you're going for as a songwriter. There's one song that we have that we play every single night, and people love it. They love screaming that shit back at me. It's an extremely visceral, angry breakup song. And people love just coming and getting shithoused and being like, fuck her, or fucking Sir Girl that dumped me last week's name here, yeah! And that's amazing, because it's a song that makes somebody feel something. That's the most rewarding thing as a songwriter is putting something out into the world that makes people feel something. That's so great. But I wish I could go back in time to 21-year-old BJ that wrote that song and be like, hey man, like this song is really going to affect people. <laughs> Maybe you should spend more than five minutes writing. <laughs> Maybe you should make some of the verses rhyme. <laughs> no? Okay. Maybe you should make it more than three chords. Cool. This is on you, man. I'll play it for the rest of our career. You write that pissed off song. Let me tell you where that song came from. I dated a girl for seven years. All through high school and college, we were engaged to be married. She cheated on me two months before our wedding with a guy, and so we called it off. Two weeks after I caught her cheating on me, she showed up at one of my shows with that guy and stood front row. So I'm standing side stage, and I see all this go down, and I have two options. I can take the high road, 
I can just ignore. I can walk out and I can play my set and be like, you know what? I am a better person for not having her in my life. And tomorrow is a new day. <laughs> but if you have learned anything about me in the last 90 minutes, I am the pettiest motherfucker of all time. The low road is where I operate. I drive in the left lane, 75, cruise control on the low road. That is my domain. And here is this lady who is new to the low road asking me to come dance on the low road. Oh, yes, ma'am. You can have this dance. So I go backstage while the opener's on, and I just start scribbling down things I wanted to yell at her. And the boys are coming by and being like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm writing a song. And they're like, what are you going to do with that? I was like, I'm going to sing it. And they're like, I'm like, tonight. And so I'm scribbling this shit out on bar napkins, just these angry diatribe, just fuck her, you know. And I get on stage. And everybody in the crowd is thinking I am taking the high road because I don't even look at her. They're downstairs, they're, they're down front making out, pawing at each other. And I'm just playing myself like nothing's happening. The band is the only people that know the tide of hate that is about to come upon <laughs> this crowd. Everybody out there is like, oh wow, BJ's turning a new leaf. Like, really responsible of a 21-year-old to really just kind of not notice what's going on out there. And good for you, BJ. So I get off stage and I come back for the encore and I am just drunk enough. I, I set that thing out on all my little bar napkin notes on the monitor and I'm just like, this is for you and you, but both of you, I hope ha happiness evades you for the rest of your life. I hope that nothing good ever comes to either one of you for the rest of I May God smite you down now. And I, I, I proceeded to play this three and a half minute song of just yelling at her as loud as I could. Just cowboy boot stomping. Imagine like a pissed off Woody from Toy Story just being like ah! Oh no! Woody's gone mad! Buzz is not here to save him. Just a drunk pissed off Woody from Toy Story. So I get done and I walk off stage. I'm playing acoustic and the boys were just like, didn't know what to say to me. They were like what the fuck was that? <laughs> now, and it was, but it was the first time in my career where I had this cathartic moment where I'd unleashed all of that negative energy. And I felt literally lighter. I was just like, holy shit. That's what it's supposed to feel like when you get rid of that stuff. Oh, wow. Thank God I never have to play this song again. <laughs> <laughs> Two nights later, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina. And some guy in the back of the room says, Play, I've got your heart! One, how the fuck do you know about that? He doesn't even have a name yet, sir. He's like, you too. And that day began my love-hate relationship with technology. And so we started playing it live. Every night we closed the show with it. And you could start seeing who the real fans were. They'd be the people that knew the song that wasn't on any records. And it was kind of like a badge of honor for fans to to know that song because you felt like a little bit better than the people that didn't know it, you know? And uh, in 2008, we went to the studio to record a record called Dances for the Lonely. And uh, thank you. Uh, I like that one a lot. Every, all six of those guys that clapped have been to a breakup and cried to my songs. And I thank you for, for being here tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting us through it. Fuck yeah, man. That's, writing that fucking record got me through it, you know? But we were recording it, and the, and the producer says, uh, we need, the album's missing something. Do you have any more songs? I was like, no, I don't have any more songs. 
And there was a guy who used to be in my band, keyword used to be in my band, chirped up and said, play him that song everybody loves and sings along to at the end of the night. I said, fuck, I don't want that to be on a record. And he said, play it for him and just let him decide. So I played it and sure enough, he's like, that's what the record needs. It needs like a big sing-along rock song. So we put it on a record. And every night since I put that record out, we've played that song as a full band and it's been like this cathartic sing-along and it's wonderful. And I love on these solo tours telling this long-winded story just to let you know that I'm not playing that song. <laughs> But it did help me define what the criteria was for my favorite songs. It's what song affected my life the most. And if anybody ever asked me what record affected my life the most, that's easy. That's 2012's Burn It, Flicker, Die. That record changed everything for me. That record pulled us out of the depths of being like a regional bar band, and that put us kind of in the national scope. Um, so I've got 12 songs in that record, and now I have to pick my favorite song off of that. So to tell you how I got to that, 2006 to 2012, we were just a touring rock and roll band. Like I told you before, my mother pointed out so clearly, I do not have the jawline for country music. I do not have the prettiest voice for country music. I do not write the best country music songs. But there's one secret weapon I have that not too many other people have. I will outwork every motherfucker in the room, no matter what. So when we started the band, I told the boys that we're going to live on the road. We might not have the best songs, but we're going to live on the road. We're going to play them every night. So since 2006, there has not been one year that went by that I played less than 250 shows. Wow. I've gotten it. I went out and took it. From 2006 to 2011, it's 250, 260, 270. And finally, in 2011, we decided we needed to cross that threshold to really hit the road and fully immerse ourselves in being a tour and rock and roll band. We played 302 shows in 2011 to zero people. Nobody showed up. We would travel the country, and nobody gave a fuck about what we were doing. The sound guys liked us. The bartenders liked us. The owners kept having us back because they believed in it, but nobody was connecting. What The songs weren't connecting with people. So in 2012, we decided the only thing to do is play more shows. So in 2012, we set a personal band record. We played 307 shows in 2012. To zero fucking people. <laughs> Bands in town, that app that everybody has, for three straight years they named us the hardest working band in the world because no other band in the world played as many shows as we did. We weren't the best band. We were going to be out there trying. But fast forward to the end of 2012, we had just played 600 plus shows in two years and had nothing to show for it. We were just swimming in credit card debt, relationships broken at home. All of us had substance abuse problems. So we decided to quit. The universe had spoken. We had worked our ass off and we knew that we could walk away from it with our head held high because we tried. We busted our ass and it just didn't work. Six years in, nothing to show for it. We were all going to go back home and get straight jobs. But there was a guy that we'd spent most of those years touring with who told us, man, you got to record these songs. And we said, no, man, we're done. We quit. I'm out of this. Fuck it. And he's like, if you don't record these songs, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And he's like, don't record them from other people. Record them for yourself. Just record them so you know that they're out there. And I'm so glad that we listened to that buddy of mine, because that buddy of mine was Jason Isbell. Yeah. I don't think we're talking about the same person. You're probably clapping your hands for the internationally celebrated folk icon, multi-grammy award-winning Jason Isbell. I made a record with a guy that was drunk that got kicked out of the drive-by truckers. 
They look very similar. Uh, they sound alike, but they are two very, very different people. And we love them both. Yeah, I, lo I love both of them. Uh, but, but to give you a timeline of this, this is six months before Jason records Southeastern. Jason is still drinking. Jason had just started dating Amanda. You listen back to Burn, Flicker, Die. She's the female background vocal on every. She would drive down every weekend and sit in the studio with. She played the fiddle on Lonely and Easy, that fiddle and That's Amanda. And if you listen to uh, all the songs, every single song, all 12 songs, it's Jason singing the background vocals. Um, and we made it in Muscle Shoals, so we got to have some of the greatest musicians in the world just come in. Like, we needed a piano part on a couple songs. And so Spooner Olden from New Young's band just stopped by and played fucking piano. And, and this is the same year Spooner got inducted in the Hall of Fame as a fucking sideman. He played piano on Mustang Sally, Land of a Thousand Ants. Any R&B hit you loved that came out of Muscle Shoals, Spooner played. And Jason calls him up and is like, hey, Spooner, what are you doing? He's like, mowing the grass. He's like, you want to come play on this band's record? He's like, sure, I'll be there in 20. Sure as shit, the guy comes in in his lawn clothes, plays piano. As he's leaving, we're like, hey, Spooner, what do we owe you? He's like, man, you've got me out of mowing grass on a Tuesday. That's all the payment I need. And he just walked out. It was a great, that kind of shit is what, it was one of the greatest recording experiences of my life. And so we made this record that was never supposed to be made in the first place. And I'm not kidding you, the day we put that record out, everything changed. We were playing, I'll never forget, we were in St. Louis, Missouri, the day that record came out. There's a place up off-Broadway in St. Louis. Yeah. We played off-Broadway. We played that place 20 times, and nobody gave a fuck. That night, it sold out. We got there, and the promoter came out and said, the show sold out tonight. And we're like, man, the opener must be great. <laughs> and we got on the stage, and sure as shit, they were there to see us. And so the next night, I'll never forget it, we came here, at the little choir, what is it, the little uh, the gospel. Our full band played that. Full band, like a six-piece rock and roll band. And it sold out. Don't get me wrong, it's a tiny room, but we've never had any kind of success in Kansas City. So the fact that we showed up and kids packed in that little room to hear our songs, it was incredible. Next night, Denver, sold out. And the rest of that tour was a lot of rooms like that, like little hundred-person rooms. But we never experienced success. So over the course of that tour, we all started reevaluating this whole quitting thing and be like, fuck, maybe we actually can do this and make a living. And sure enough, every year has passed and band members have come and gone. But every year we keep getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And it's just about keeping at it. It's a war of attrition being a musician. It's just about staying in the game. Keep writing songs. Keep trying to be better. Keep trying to make people feel things. And because of you guys, because of that record, you guys are showing up on a Monday night to listen to me tell stories about my dad. And so to pick my favorite song off this record, the one that influenced me the most, when we decided to work with Jason, Jason sent me a text message and said, hey man, uh, I need you to send me the songs you're going to record. I said, why? He's like, because if they suck, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and that was intimidating to me. Not only was he a friend, he was one of my favorite songwriters. We'd spent most of 2011-12 playing shows with Jason. Like I'm telling you, he was playing in front of less than 100 people every night. He play, I watched him play Dress Blues to 80 people in Atlanta, Georgia, who didn't give a fuck. He was just a songwriter songwriter. But he was one of my friends, but he was also some, a genius. I knew he was a genius. And so I was very adamant about, like, man, which song do I send him? Like, i got to send him the best one. So I send him the first song I wrote for the record. 
And before I could send him the second song, he sent me a message back and just said, as long as they're all like this, we got a record. And I was like, fuck, I'm not sending anything else. <laughs> <laughs> got him. And so we, were, we went down and we recorded. The original title of this song uh, is Redheads and Adderall. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as soon as we got down to the studio, Jason's like, we're going to have to work on the name of this song. And uh, this, this is the song that I always tell people now when they ask me, what's your favorite song? Uh, that was just a really long-winded way to get to this song. Because uh, if, if I hadn't sent this song, we wouldn't have made that record. And if we didn't make that record, that turn never happens. And so this is the song that I, I feel like my career was built on. And uh, I'm going to play it for you guys. <laughs> Dollar bill prescriptions in the bathroom stalls. Red-headed women in alcohol. Say it ain't so, say it ain't last call. Whiskey on the rocks and Adderall. Double whiskey on the rocks and Adderall. We ain't no different than neon lights. We turn on the song, we stay up all night We do what we can, we put up a fight We burn too long, we flicker and die Yes, nights like these and the drugs don't work God, they just get in the way instead of picking me up my addictions didn't mean so much But we all can't be born with that kind of luck You try but you won't fix what's wrong with me Every night of my own worst enemy I'll find a way to quit when they bury me I can't turn down the drinks when they're free I can't turn down the drinks when they're free Yeah, we ain't no different than neon lights We turn us on, we stay up all night We do what we can, we put up a fight we burn too long, we flicker and die. We burn too long, we flicker and die. Every girl in that bar looked like 1965. With her sailor tattoos and her drawn out eyes. And every night and then she still crosses my mind. By every now and then I mean most of the time By every now and then I mean all of the time Yeah, we are no different than neon lights We turn us on, we stay up all night We do what we can, we put up a fight we burn too long, we flicker and die. We burn too long, we flicker and die. We burn too long, we flicker and die. We burn.
cheap meat just hanging on her face. Yeah, she has got the jowls that, that I have. Yeah, it's it, oh, she's it's stupid. It's not fair. Pigs, pigs has to so in the in the van. It's pigs has his seat, and then Pearl has her seat, and then me and Rachel are up front, and the, the car seat has to fade backwards. And, and she loves pigs. And so anytime she starts like crying or getting upset, pigs like put his head down and just be like. And she like just takes off. Like she's been on the road with me for the last three months, and she is killing it. She's just. She's been to 17 states now, and just, oh, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun to have her out there. But I wrote this song, uh, Madeline, uh, in 2015, way before I had a kid. And so we didn't name our daughter that, because I, I didn't want her to be confused in early age. Like, why am I not named Madeline? This song's not about me. Am I a time-traveling baby? Did you, did, you, did you change my name, protect me from something I did when I was a kid and don't remember? Do I have an older sister that I need to search down after I graduate from high school? Just wanted to avoid that. But in 2015, I wrote that song because I was in Brussels, Belgium, uh, the night the Paris attacks happened. Um, and as soon as the Paris attacks happened, they rush over to us at our show and they cancel it. They said, there's been a terrorist attack at a rock and roll club. We're shutting this down. You gotta get out of here and get back to the Dutch border. So we pack up and sprint back. Turns out the European Union does not take kindly to six Americans racing in a sprinter van back to a border 45 minutes after a terrorist attack. So they stopped us at the border and they made us stay at a hotel for two days while they just made sure that we were who we were and it was safe for us to continue the tour. In that two days, I wrote an entire record I wrote a record called Rockingham. It's my solo record. It is, uh, it is full of songs about where I'm from, my home. It's where my head went when I was there for those two days wondering what the fuck, why would somebody go into a rock and roll club and do something like that? Um, so I just, in my head, I went back to where I was from. I wrote songs about my dad, my grandpa, my mom, dumbasses I went to high school with that are still incarcerated for stupid shit to do when they was 19. But there's also a song on that record for a daughter that I knew I would have one day, just in case something uh, tragic happened to me while I was playing a show. And I wasn't able to impart her the knowledge that I think I picked up over 30 years of traveling the country. Um, so I wanted to put it into a song just in case anything ever happens to me. Um, and a lot of folks stop me and say, BJ, how did you know you were going to have a daughter? That's easy. Karma is real. <laughs> I told you earlier, anytime I got close to being happy growing up, I would just set it on fire and walk away. That includes every romantic relationship I had throughout my 20s. I was horrific to women. I would just throw it away, mix it, mix it with being just an alcoholic piece of shit. And uh, it was not fun to date me. I'm sure it sounds glorious, me being gone 300 days a year, being a drunk alcoholic who cheats on you all the time. I'm sure that sounds fun. Um, but needless to say, I was horrific to women throughout my 20s. And... Uh, I know for a fact that as soon as I had a kid, it was going to be a daughter. And if me and my wife are ever lucky enough to have another child, it'll be a daughter. I can have ten fucking kids, and they're all going to be morally corrupt teenage girls who live to push me to the brink of insanity. And I'm okay with it. I deserve it. But I feel like if I can wrap my head around that early on, it'll be a, a little bit less of a blow when it actually fucking happens. Like when Pearl gets old enough to date someone, 15, 16, when she starts dating that older guy, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna see that motherfucker coming. I'm gonna hear him coming. I'm gonna look at the end of my dirt road, and I'm just gonna hear the light rumbling. 
of Bachman Turner Overdrive. Taking care of And that ball of dust is going to keep getting closer to my driveway, coming down that dirt road. And from that ball of dust is going to emerge a late 80s Trans Am blue, primered hood, T-tops out, middle of February, unironically blasting a song from 30 years before this fucking kid was even born. And he's going to get that thing sideways in my driveway, and he's going to jump out, and he's going to bow duke it across the front. He's going to walk up to my front door, and he's going to say, Hey, Mr. Barm, I'm here for your daughter. I'm going to look him straight in his face. I'm going to say... I know, Chad. I've traveled the country for 20 plus years telling people of your coming. The prophecy is now fulfilled. Please take care of my daughter. And I feel if I tell myself that story, that it's just going to be easier today if fucking happens. And so I wrote this song for her, and, and like, I told, like I said, I wrote this song before I even had a kid. I wrote this song based off of what I explained to you my job is. My, my job is to listen and to see things and observe and translate that into feelings and put them into words to make you feel that thing. So when I wrote this song, I just listened to friends of mine that had kids and listened to my parents talk about when me and my brother were born. And I wanted to put a couple pieces of my own information in there just so she, the stuff I think is important to know. My, my ideals, my, my values. And so now, even though the name of the song is different than my daughter's name, I, I sing this for her every night. Um, these words mean so much more to me now that, that she's here. They're, they're not just a song anymore. It's not just lines that I'm reciting. These are daily mantras that I get to sing to her. And uh, this is for her. I'm going to leave you with this one. My name is BJ Barnes. Thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. <laughs> I'll see y'all at the next table here in a second. It was raining cats and dogs on the day you were born. Summertime on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And through the scattered thunderstorms and the waves of heat lightning, we carved your name in the pines forever and always. Oh man, Adeline I feel like there's so much I ought to tell you But all we have is time And so tonight I'll just sit right here and hold you I wish I could tell you that the world is a safe place but I have seen the darkest side of people And since the day they put you in my arms And my eyes got lost in yours I learned that we are taught not born with evil Oh man, Adeline I feel like there's so much I ought to tell you But all oh, we have this time And so tonight I'll just sit right here and hold you
Go out and find a boy that doesn't gamble with emotions and looks at you the way your mother looks at me. I hope you wake up every morning knowing you are loved. I hope you make this life whatever you want it to be. You see, pride is as dangerous as it is essential. Most things worth having won't cost you a dime. And never trust a man who does hard drugs in his 30s. The most valuable thing you can give someone's your time. And never be ashamed of the fact that you are Southern. Those long vowels, oh, they're a beautiful thing. And hearing your own voice is the hardest part of singing. But that should never stop you from trying to sing. Oh, man, Adeline, I feel like there's so much I ought to tell you. But all we have is time. And so tonight, I'll just sit right here and hold you. It was raining cats and dogs on the day you were born. Thank you so much, Kansas City. I'll see you all.